Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio with your host, Teresa Kuhn. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio here on Talk Radio, 1370 AM, streaming live at talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Did you know the current national debt is over $18 trillion? In case you're wondering, that's about $150,000 per taxpayer. How in the world is this sustainable? And what would it mean for us if the United States had to default on such a staggering mountain of debt? Most importantly, how do we change this? There's a lot of talk about raising the debt ceiling and the need for more borrowing, but most Americans realize that more spending is not the solution. But how do we stop the people in charge from mortgaging our children's future? If our representatives and government won't do it for us, is there anything we can do to make a real change? Well, our guest today, Nick Dranius, is an attorney and the president and executive director for Compact for America Educational Foundation, Compact meaning Agreement for America, and he's found what he believes is the solution to rein in a rogue federal government and get the spending back under control. Nick, welcome to Living Wealthy Radio. Is our government really rogue? Our government is rogue. A lot of people talk about a runaway convention if you organize a convention whereby the states can propose amendments. Well, we already have a runaway convention. We have a Washington political class that redefines its own power in only one direction to expand it all the time and in disregard of the Constitution and even basic fiscal responsibility. Is this true and, and with both parties? Absolutely. Look at the Bush era. Look at the Obama era. They're almost the mirror image of each other, just one's a little bit more aggressive. Yes, and that typically is my position. You know, when 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 one ventures into the political discussion, um, I, I'm finding more and more, regardless of whether someone is Democrat or Republican, I'm finding more agreement that people are saying, you know what, um, there's not a whole lot of difference and where we're going, where the parties are taking us. It's just maybe the rhetoric is a little bit different, but I think both parties are taking us to the same place. And I think six, seven years ago, that wasn't the case. I think most people still were very firm in their, the differences between the parties. Absolutely. And it, but think about it this way. How could it be any other way when the federal government has unlimited borrowing capacity Politicians can promise and spend anything it takes to get elected at no immediate political cost. It doesn't matter who you put in that environment, unless they're angels, they're going to grow the the size and scope of the federal government to get elected. So how is it possible that the government can have unlimited spending capabilities? I mean, you know, I, with my clients, you know, I work with money, and I always um, compare the federal government and their spending to our local budget, right? Our own budget and our own households, because I think people can get grasp that concept. You know, if your budget was unlimited, your, your debt capability was unlimited, right? Not an unlimited budget, but unlimited debt capability. If the credit card um, offers came in, regardless of what your balances were, you know, most people would go out of control with their spending, right? 
Absolutely. And think about it. There's two fatal flaws in our federal constitution, one of which we fixed, that was slavery. The other of which we've never fixed, and that is the unlimited capacity to borrow. And this is not something that we're the first to recognize. Thomas Jefferson in 1798 said, I wish it were possible to obtain a single amendment to our constitution. I'd be willing to depend on that alone for the reduction of our Constitution to its original principles, I mean an additional article taking from the federal government the power of borrowing. Well, why did the Founding Fathers give the government that ability? The simple answer is that Alexander Hamilton wanted a big, bad federal government, and that's what he got. The problem is, although, you know, you can kind of understand that motive when you're in a world surrounded by empires like Britain and France, uh, if you let that monster grow over time, it becomes as dangerous as anything you wanted to grow it into. Well, here we are, right? $18 trillion and government still borrowing money. Absolutely, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. See, people talk about the $18.1 trillion in debt as if that's the beginning. Actually, that is just a small amount of the unfunded liabilities that the federal government has. Lawrence Kotlikoff has recently estimated that the amount in present value that we owe in terms of these unfunded entitlement programs, pension funds, and so on, is actually around $210 trillion. So it's important to understand that the limitless credit card the federal government has enables promises by politicians to get elected to go far beyond the actual debt number. It goes into the hundreds of trillions of dollars of programs that simply cannot be afforded. And some of those programs are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. What else? Well, most recently, the federal health care program, some people call Obamacare. And not only that, but also, you know, federal employee pension funds. I mean, folks getting out of uh, the job and retiring in the federal government are making, you know, the kinds of money that people who win the lotteries normally make. Uh, you know, the bottom line is, why would this not happen if you give an unlimited credit card to people who need to get elected? Of course, they're going to borrow and spend whatever it takes to make as many constituents happy, and as long as the boom doesn't come down during their you know, term in office, they'll, they'll not stop. And if it does, then they just point fingers, right? Absolutely. Well, that's what we saw at the crash in 2008. Even worse, they panic and do really stupid things like TARP, where they give the executive branch almost a third of the entire spending authority of the federal government to, to just go ahead and do whatever they wanted with it. And... We are also seeing the government, um, the federal government, uh, how do I say this? They are becoming like the guarantors for industries to get into debt and lose money or make investments that aren't necessarily sound, saying it's okay if you fail because we'll pick up the tab. And why not? They can borrow whatever they want. See, this is the thing. If you give politicians cost-free money, the ability to give everybody anything they want at no immediate cost, which is what unlimited borrowing capacity does, you see all kinds of stupid policies. And in fact, it's not just things like the bank bailouts and the GM bailout that we need to worry about. You know, if you have this illusion of unlimited resources, what does even efficiency mean? I mean, what is waste, fraud, and abuse if money doesn't matter? I mean, the basic fundamental problem of government is created by unlimited borrowing capacity. If you turn loose a bunch of elected officials with the ability to write their own checks without limit, 
you're never going to stop the growth of government. It doesn't matter what any other parchment barrier says. It sounds overwhelming. Sounds overwhelming. But it also points to the solution because, you know, Deming said that every system uh, gives you exactly what it's designed to do. And, and so all of these facts about the abuse of borrowing capacity point to an easy solution. We have a systemic problem. It's in the Constitution. And so we have to amend the Constitution to fix it. And the question is how. So what's the answer? Well, you, you how do you do you it? Don't wait, you don't wait for Congress to lead, that's for sure. And so what you want to do is have those institutions that are closest to us that still know what a balanced budget amendment means, at least in broad strokes, and, and that is the states. And it turns out the Constitution allows states to originate constitutional amendments by way of a convention of states. And the problem has been in the past that people didn't know how to control that process to target it to particular amendments like a balanced budget amendment. Well, we figured out how to do that at Compact for America. And it's not too hard. Folks in your audience probably do it all the time. It's called a contract. You simply have the need, the number of states you need to originate and ratify an amendment, agree in advance to do just that. So before we go there, how many states have a balanced budget requirement in their constitution? There are 42 states that have either debt limits that are functionally like balanced budget amendments or outright balanced budget amendments in their constitutions, but in reality the number is closer to 49 states because of court decisions and statutes. And how is that working? Well, by and large, it's hard to find a state that approximates anything like the $210 trillion in unfunded liabilities and $18.1 trillion in debt like the federal government. I mean, you might be able to argue that Illinois is about as badly run as the federal government, but that's pretty good odds if you think about it. I mean, if you get one state out of 49 that runs as badly as the federal government with a balanced budget amendment, that's the kind of odds we should be shooting for. So why is Illinois not running well if they, if they have that amendment? Because they cheat it, and it's poorly drafted, and they basically tell people not to cash the checks that they issue. Oh, lovely. (laughs) Yeah, but the the difference is this is the benefit of hindsight and standing on the shoulder of giants and seeing trial and error. We don't have to recreate the wheel here. We can see how balanced budget amendments have played out in the states, and we can design an amendment that can control for all the ways in which they're cheated in the states, and that's exactly what we've done to Compact for America. Which states are doing are doing the best with this balanced budget amendment in their constitution? Probably uh, New Mexico, uh, North Dakota, uh, you know, Wyoming. It's hard. You know, there's a big cluster of fairly well-run states uh, in terms of their finances. You might not like the tax policies. You might not like what they spend things on. But they're not running an unsustainable, uh, ridiculous fiscal policy like we see in the federal government. There's probably 15 to 20 states you could put in that category. Very good. And how long have these states adopted a balanced budget? Well, most states have been doing it since the late uh, 19th century. And the reason for that is you know, there was a time when most states could borrow without limit. And, in fact, some states even authorized the printing of currency. And uh, in, when they did that, very much like the federal government, soon they were subsidizing railroads and canals and all kinds of boondoggles. And then eventually these things popped destroyed state finances, and in starting in about the mid-19th century, going to the early 20th century, it became known to be basic good government to limit borrowing capacity, because if you give politicians who are elected the unlimited ability to borrow and promise anything they want to get elected, they'll do that.
So it's had a long history of working at the state level. So let's talk about, you know, taking that to, you know, how how is this implemented for the federal government in terms of um, adopting this for um, for the federal government? If it's working on the state level, it's been working for over 100, 150 years. Almost 49 of the 50 states have figured this out. How do we get the feds to adopt this? Well, what you do is you first design a good amendment, and that's what we've done. Our amendment is very is based around a backbone principle that's incredibly powerful, and that is do not spend more than cash on hand, with, ex- with one exception. And that is you get to borrow from a limited revolving line of credit specified in absolute dollar terms in the Constitution. And the only flexibility that you can get beyond that is if you have a referendum process, just like we, you know, we don't trust our school boards to issue their own bonds in most states without a referendum. It's amazing that we allow Congress to do that freely without a referendum. So what we do for flexibility in our amendment is we say you have to convince within 60 days a majority of state legislatures to increase your initial borrowing capacity. If you fail to do so, it's denied, and you have to learn to live within your means. So this puts power back into the states, which is... dramatic power back into the states, absolutely. It makes the states have control as an oversight board over national debt policy, which means when you're running as much on debt as we currently are running, the states effectively are put in a position to control half of the power of the federal government. Well, and when the states have too much power... The feds like to take away that power. For instance, I'm, I'm just thinking of like speed limit laws, right? There was a time that um, the federal government was going to withhold money from the states unless the states adopted um, what the federal government wanted in terms of speed limit laws. And the same Absolutely. is true for so many initiatives, right? Or so many spending projects. Um, Absolutely. What's to say that the federal government wouldn't do that again? Well, it'd be very foolish for them to antagonize the people right, you know, overseeing their borrowing activities, and, and it would produce humility for that reason alone. You know, we'd have an entirely new relationship between the states and the federal government if the states were acting as an active board of directors overseeing the use of that the federal government uses, because the federal government has ranged from as much as 45% of the budget running on borrowed money to where we are currently, which is around uh, 15 to 20% of the budget running on borrowed money. When you're running on borrowed money to that extent, anyone who has ultimate oversight over your borrowing capacity is going to have tremendous influence, and, and it's going to cause a tremendous degree of humility in the federal government. For once, the states will be regarded as a partner and, and not a bug to be squashed. So my understanding of the Federal Reserve is that the Federal Reserve is the lending institution for the federal government. Is that, is that your understanding? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than I would call the Federal Reserve a cartel of banks that, uh, you know, basically monopolizes in the function of generating legal tender. Um, it also has the function of buying bonds when it chooses to, but, but it doesn't have to. So what would be the Federal Reserve's position regarding the compact? 
You know, I think that if you have more responsible people in the Federal Reserve, people who want to restrain the growth of the currency, they would see the amendment as uh, as an ally. Because if you limit the ability of the federal government to borrow, they'll be less able to produce bonds for the federal government for the Federal Reserve to buy, which means that there will be less opportunity to inflate the money supply. And and I think that there still are some responsible people in the Federal Reserve that would see that as a positive development. Have you has your organization been lobbying the Federal Reserve? Do do you think they've got a big say in this or? Well, we we haven't lobbied them, but our council of scholars includes economists who have worked for or with uh, Fed uh, economists, and you know their perspective has has given us a, the ability to, to, to design this amendment in a way that rational people, to the extent they can be found in the Federal Reserve, can agree with this policy. Hmm. Has uh, what makes this initiative and this agreement different than other balanced budget amendments that have been out there? Well, first of all, no other federal balanced budget amendment effort actually has an amendment that they can point to that is at the centerpiece of their amendment effort. So we're unique in that regard. We can say you can touch, taste, and feel our amendment. You can take it out for a spin. You can subject it to any sort of uh, evasion tactics or gaming tactics you like to see if you can break it. Uh, we've done that for years now. Uh, we don't believe it can be broken. It is what it is. It's not going to deliver us into, you know, libertarian la-la land overnight. It's not designed to do that. It's designed to get the 38 states, which means principled compromises with the center left, the center, and the center right. But there was a time when limiting borrowing capacity was a nonpartisan, non-ideological, good government issue, and, and that's what it's designed to restore, to restore. Now, another way that we're different is that, in principle, we can get this done in 12 months. No other effort can make that claim. Don't we already have a debt limit? I mean... Uh, <laughs> I know that's funny, but we do. Well, it's been suspended now for almost a year. In fact, right now, as we speak, there's not any limit on the borrowing capacity of the federal government. Now, it resumes March 15th, uh, and on March 15th, the debt limit will res- be res- resumed at the, sa- at the level of borrowing that we had achieved up to that point. So that means if we've borrowed $20 trillion by March 15th, that's what the debt ceiling is. And we have good reason to believe that part of the reason why the Treasury has been borrowing so, so much in the past few months and pushing us beyond $18 trillion is, is really for needless borrowing to make sure that when the debt ceiling resumes, they've got maximum borrowing capacity so they can outlast Congress in any ensuing debate. I've got to tell you, Nick, it just sounds so, it it sounds like such a joke, right? The whole, not, not Compact for America, certainly, but just our federal government and the debt ceiling and that conversation, it's really like they don't want to make a change and they don't want to do anything different, right? Um, Every time I hear a discussion about the debt ceiling and, and the debt and the spending, it's, it's just like a bunch of drunken sailors with a credit card, um, an unlimited credit card. At least that's that's my take on it. Right, but don't don't give up hope because look, we're going to be moving the congressional resolution that activates our amendment effort in the states in, in a week or even less. And, and there are good people that have been recently elected to Congress. Maybe enough for the simple majorities of each house we need to get the job done on the congressional side. And, and the reason why we have a lot of hope that this could happen in the next few weeks 
is that the resolution they need to pass in Congress doesn't have any immediate effect. It only has an effect if we can get 38 states on board with our effort. And, and that means in the short run, it just looks like all political upside and no political downside, which is the best persuasion tactic we can have with Congress. So how many states are you thinking are in line for this? Well, right now we've got two states, Alaska and Georgia, that have formed this agreement to ratify a balanced budget amendment specified in advance. We're moving in 12 states right now. Four states have passed it out of their first chamber, leaving only one more chamber and the governor to go. And Texas, most recently, is is added to the rolls. Uh, We had our first educational hearing last week under Chairman Phil King in the Select Committee of State and Federal Power. And our, our prime sponsor is Representative Jesse White. I'm sorry, Representative James White, James White, and the, and the guy is a dynamo. And you think the others will line up? You know, I, look, they're going to have no choice because once we've got a critical mass of states in this agreement, something politically is going to have to happen. And the reason for that is that politicians are entrepreneurs. If they see the will massing behind this specific amendment, soon it's going to be people jumping on board just because they see it as a way of getting ahead in their political career. So in the short run, you know, we are hoping to have at least a third of the states we need to get the job done by June. And then beyond that, we're hoping that uh, the leadership that these states show, combined with Congress passing the resolution to activate this this amendment process, will encourage other politicians out of their own narrow self-interest to start leading as well. And so best case scenario, you've got a third of the states by June, and then you think 38 states by the end of the year? Well, we think that if Congress approves this effort, in the next few weeks, it'd, light a, it'd be like lighting a bomb. I, I could see, we could see a pathway to 30 states on board within six to nine months. Getting to the last uh, eight states, to getting to the 38 states we need to get the job done, that's a little bit more challenging. We've got to reach out to the good people that still are out there, believe in fiscal responsibility on the center and the center left, and, and that's, that's going to be our job. Do the citizens understand this is out there? Citizens are increasingly aware of this on a huge level because, you know, they're looking for answers. And they know one thing. You know, you've heard about this Tenth Amendment nullification movement. I've got nothing against it, but there's one thing you can't nullify, and there's one thing you can't tenth, you can't get around under the Tenth Amendment, and that's unlimited borrowing capacity of the federal government. It is clearly constitutional, and that means that when the government's borrowing all this money, you can't nullify it. You can't beat it with the Tenth Amendment. The only way to fix national debt is to change the system that created it and to make sure that there's a limit on that borrowing capacity. We're going to take a quick break. Our guest today is Nick Dranius, and we're discussing solutions to the problem of runaway federal spending and the staggering national debt. We'll discuss more about constitutional remedies when we return from our quick break. This is Teresa Kuhn with Living Wealthy Radio. Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa's team online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-3986. 
800-382-0830 now. Call 1-800-382-0830. Welcome back, Austin, to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Well, our guest today, Nick Dranius, is an attorney and the president and executive director for Compact for America. And he's found what he believes is the solution and how it can put power back in the hands of the states and we the people. So, Nick, let's let's talk a little bit more about this problem of the federal government and their spending and what it means for us as Americans and our children and grandchildren. Um there's so many problems and issues with this this spending. And, of course, number one is um, what are we doing to our children and our grandchildren? What kind of debt are they inheriting? Well, let's be very clear. What unlimited borrowing capacity is enabling is taxation without representation. I mean, when we talk about these big numbers, $210 trillion, $18.1 trillion, What we mean is every man, woman, and child, every newborn baby is born owing, in present value terms, $700,000 in debt and unfunded liabilities. And they never had, and our kids in particular, and their kids, have never had any voice or any representation in the political process that has saddled them with that debt. And there is, even worse, there's no sign that the spiraling debt is going to change, that the, that the unfunded promises aren't going to continue unless we fix the systemic problem, which is the Constitution, which allows for that to happen. So if all else is equal and nothing changes, every man, woman, child is looking at over $700,000 of debt that they're responsible Absolutely. And if you saw a chart of the increase in unfunded liabilities or in the increase in our debt, you would see that it's exponential. It's just going to infinity and beyond. So $700,000 is the number for a baby born today. It could be $800,000 a month from now. It could be a million dollars a year from now. I mean, from 2006 to the present date, we almost doubled the debt, the national debt. We doubled the present value of unfunded liabilities. I mean, the rate at which we're incurring this debt is getting so insanely irresponsible that we are guaranteeing societal conflict and maybe even collapse for our kids. And no generation has done this to the future generation before. I mean, absolutely our moral imperative is decent human beings to stop this. What about other countries? I mean, has any other country survived this kind of, of debt? No. I mean, we are right now, in terms of percentage of GDP, percentage of everything... You know, created in this in this country of economic value, at least as measured by the government, we are where Greece was in 2007 when the whole world panicked. And and the only reason why we're persisting in this, much like Japan has persisted for 20 years, is that there's nowhere else money to go. I mean, we're the least bad of the bad behavior behaviors, the badly behaving governments in the world. But at some point, reality is going to catch up because ultimately everything is scarce in reality. And if you build a system around the illusion of unlimited resources and the non-existence of scarcity, eventually that bubble pops. And and the the problem is, you know, you look around our society and you don't have to be an old fogey to worry that our culture has gotten so much for the worse that that if you pop this bubble bubble, rather than creating a renaissance, you could create a Somalia out of our country. And, And so... 
that's not a responsible way to handle this situation. The situation needs to be handled in a way that allows for a transition to reasonable fiscal policy. So there's no safe haven for us to to flee to, right? If if we if if somebody stood up and said, you know, I'm 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 going to swim to shore to some other shore to get off the sinking ship, you're basically saying all the ships are sinking and we are sinking um, slower than the other ships in the world. I think that's 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 largely the, the case. And, and if you look around the world and look at history, recent history, look at what happens when governments behave like our government. Take Argentina, for example. It was only a few years after they defaulted under their unsustainable borrowing. Uh, it was only a few years later before they nationalized their equivalent of 401ks, replaced everyone's actual investments with worthless bonds they couldn't sell on the, on the bond market. So, you know, governments behave really badly in horrible ways that destroy people's futures and, and make them dependent on government and make them helpless uh, when, you, when you get into a situation like we're finding ourselves. I mean, it was only a, a couple of years ago when some folks in the Obama administration, I can't remember their names exactly, but there was this running joke that they were just going to print a trillion-dollar coin and stick it in the Treasury and solve the, debt, and solve the trillion-dollar deficit problem they were having at the time. You know, but that, that's only, you know, it's not really that funny because that is the first sign a third world fiscal policy when you when the federal government starts having money printed to order to cover up their deficits so if our economy blows up what does that mean for all the other economies in the world i mean we're all in this together you know we're in an interconnected economic situation and and if we go down that's going to take down every other country that's integrated with our economy and and so you know but my point is you know look in, in our current cultural situation, when we have so many misallocations of investments, when we have so many trends in which people are learning to be dependent rather than independent rather than innovative, you don't want to risk that kind of coming collapse. You want to try to fix the problem, transition to a more reasonable fiscal policy. And the only way to get a handle on that is by having a balanced budget amendment like ours, where you put a limit on borrowing capacity, you allow for a, a transitional period, kind of like taking a heroin addict off of their heroin on, and putting them on methadone for a little while. You know, we got to have that transition period where the, the reality of scarcity sinks in, not all at once, but with a degree of inevitability that finally priorities are set and people start behaving in a little bit more rational and responsible way. Thank God there are people in this world like you who, you know, retain the optimism, right, and fight the good fight. Um, the compact for the compact for America, you know, compact meaning agreement, right, um, that you're proposing is state initiated, uh, which, in my understanding, gives it a better opportunity to pass because it's coming from the state, not from Congress, right? Why? Well, the most important thing is we don't wait for Congress to monkey with the amendment and turn it into a you know, a show piece instead of a reality check. And that's the advantage of the states. The states, for all their faults and their balanced budget amendments, they, they do feel the pinch of limited resources. And, and they feel that pinch and they behave incredibly much more responsibly than the federal government, even with all their warts. And so starting from the states enables us to craft a product, a political product that better fits the reality that we're facing of, un, of limited resources so that then we can take that product to Congress and, and say, look, run with this. It will be good politics for you. You can help yourself get elected. We still have to get 38 states on board. 
In the meantime, you get to bask in the sunshine. And our founding fathers, our Constitution, allows for this type of state-initiated amendment. Because originally, the founding fathers gave the states more power than the federal government. The federal government was the slave and the, and the state was the master, right? Well, this power was the leash. This was the ultimate power the states enjoyed over the federal government. I mean, the fed- look, the states created the federal government, not the other way around. And the states weren't stupid when they did it. They didn't just rely on their reserved powers in the Tenth Amendment. They reserved to themselves. They gave themselves the ability to amend the federal government's charter, to amend the Constitution, to redefine federal power if they so chose. And the states have not used that power effectively for over 200 years. The compact approach, the agreement among the states approach that we're advancing, where the states agree to the amendment and everything else involved in the amendment process in one single bill per state, finally makes it possible to get it done. And it's a state-initiated amendment to the Constitution that you believe could stop the ballooning debt and balance the federal budget in as little as one year? We will stop taxation without representation. We will put a limit on the credit card of the federal government, and we will then introduce the states into a position of oversight and intervention. That sounds amazing. That sounds awesome. So break it down again um, for the states, the, the timeline that you think you've got. Well, right now we've got two states in, Georgia and Alaska. We've got 12 states beyond that moving uh, to join the compact. That means we could have 14 states in the agreement to ratify a balanced budget amendment by the end of June. And we could have even more if Congress passes the resolution that blesses or activates that agreement. And that only requires simple majorities in each house. And then after the last election, that's something that, you know, is very, very plausible, if not likely. And so we could be in a position where the fuse is lit after 12 to 14 states get into this agreement by Congress, and we explode and get another 30 states, you know, get a total of 30 states into the agreement, putting us within striking distance in as few as 12 months. How does the state join the Compact for Balanced Budget? All you do is you pass a bill, just like any other bill that a legislature you know, will pass, with simple majorities, a signature of the governor. The bill is called the Compact for a Balanced Budget in Texas. It's HB 1109. HB 1109 is being prime sponsored by Representative James White, uh, and that's moving on the ground right now with your support. It, it you know, with the support of your audience, it can move faster. Uh, it, it, you, basically, you pass this one bill that says we are joining an agreement to advance and ratify a, a federal balanced budget amendment. And when you get 38 states passing the same bill, then the compact is formed. And when Congress passes a resolution to activate it with simple majorities, the process begins within six weeks. You will have a 24-hour convention that either votes up or down the amendment. And when that's done, within seconds, it will be deemed ratified and a part of the Constitution. Who are the delegates to the convention? How are they chosen? Yeah, the great thing about using the agreement in advance is you can flesh everything out in advance as to exactly what's going to happen in this process. And so you designate in the agreement, in this one bill each state joins, who the delegates are. The default delegate, the delegate in Texas, is the governor. Governor Abbott would be the state of Texas's sole delegate 
to go to the convention and within 24 hours vote up or down this amendment. Uh, do you have any idea how the governor in Texas, um, what he thinks about this compact? Well, I think Governor Abbott is one of the, the strongest governors that Texas has had in a long line of strong governors. Uh, early on in his, uh, his in his campaign, he invited me to tweet up this particular issue. Uh, so I'm hopeful that signals that he's receptive to it at the least. And is this compact, as far as you're concerned, is it following on politi- falling on political lines, or both conservatives and Democrats are for this? Well, you know, what's great about Texas is you still have, you know, the old, uh, you know, fiscally responsible centrists and center-left uh, Democrat uh, elected officials. And maybe it's the overall attitude or atmosphere of the state, but uh, we, we, there's a gentleman named Representative uh, Richard Raymond, who used to be a staffer for Senator Paul Simon, probably the most liberal U.S. senator in, in uh, of the 1990s, uh, and who also supported a balanced budget amendment back then, and he's one of our co-sponsors here in Texas. So the great thing about limiting borrowing capacity is you don't have to be on the center right to see its value. You can simply say to yourself, look, how do I ever get efficiency out of government? How do I ever stop waste, fraud, or abuse if the guys committing waste, fraud, and abuse have an unlimited credit card? I mean, how do you ultimately beat them when, when money doesn't matter? You have to make money matter to beat efficiency, beat inefficiency, to beat waste, fraud, and abuse. And, and, and nobody, you know, barring psychopaths, nobody, left or right, wants to just burn our taxpayer dollars in piles. They, they, they want efficient government. They don't want waste, fraud, and abuse, whatever they think government should be doing. So that's the pitch. And I think that good people of goodwill can all agree on that. In all states, not just Texas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Recently, we uh, passed out a committee in Arkansas on Friday with with three Democrat votes, a third of their caucus in the committee. Uh, So the reality is that this is not an ideological issue, except for those who want to make it an ideological issue. If what you want to do is run government well, then whatever you think government should be doing, you've got to start with a limit on its borrowing capacity. You can't give... You know, politicians, the ability to promise anything it takes to get elected, whether you're on the right or the left, you'll never generate good public policy. How did you start Compact for America? <laughs> well, it all started about uh, two and a half, three years ago when I was at the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix and uh, was trying to amend the Constitution from the states without an agreement in advance, sort of just organizing the states to petition Congress for a convention with just a general topic of fixing the debt. And, and it, it went down in flames in, in 18 of the 20 states in which I had provided expert testimony. And I, and I said to myself, well, why is it going down in flames? And then suddenly, you know, the, the loss, failure clarified it. It was that we didn't have a product. We didn't have an amendment. We had a topic. We didn't have a process either. We were just hoping it would unfold in a good way. So it became very clear what you had to do at that point. You had to have a way to get an amendment that actually included the amendment, that actually spelled out the process. And and what do we do in law? We we, we create contracts for that. So the solution became very clear. We, we needed to have the states enter into a binding sovereign contract, a compact, to get the job done. How, how many hours a week, how many hours a month have you dedicated to this project? This is, this is amazing. This is such, <laughs> if you're able to do this, um, that, you know, your name would be possibly a household word, right? 
Well, I, it's not what motivates me. Uh, no doubt, you know, the, no doubt. What, what motivates me is saving, you know, the future of my kids. I have an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old, um, and you know, I'm also married to a wonderful uh, wife. And and you know, what life is all ultimately about is the world that you leave to your children and and the prosperity and happiness that you can make possible, not only for yourself but for them. And and I can tell you the trajectory we're on in this country is going to destroy their future. And I'm just not going to let that happen. I'm not going to rest except what I need to do for my health, other than to move this issue, to support this issue, to convince people to this issue. And that's frankly how I've been living for the past five months since I left Goldwater Institute to focus entirely on this in my career. I mean, the Compact for America team, we're all like this. Chip DeMoss, who's local in Houston, uh, and others, you know, we're all devoting 15, 16, 18 hours a day to this every day of the week as long as we can stay focused and stay you know, effective, because we just don't have any time to waste. You know, the older I become, the more I recognize um, it's really beginning with the end in mind. And it's about what, what kind of legacy are, uh, are we leaving, right, to our children, our grandchildren. And I think that's something that um, our government, our federal government, really is not focused on at all. Um, it's not about the legacy. It's about today, right? And the promises of, of today that we can we can make to our constituents, so we can, you know, get elected and and keep our power. Um, no one really is paying attention to the legacy that we're bringing, and it's so sad. I think it's not, a, it's, it's not unusual either. I mean, think about it. Before women had the right to vote, no doubt there were some very loving husbands out there that would try to represent their interests. But guess what? They wouldn't do as good a job. You have to be able to vote your own interests. You have to have an ability to be heard. And until we develop a time machine, there's just no way our kids can influence the public policy debate today. And there's just no way we can represent them adequately. That's why we need a balanced budget amendment. You know, there was a, a post on your blog about how Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision underpins the Compact for Balance budget. Talk about the connection there. I found that very interesting. It's about representation. It goes back to the point that, you know, look, there was a time in our country when, uh, when African Americans, even Sicilians in some places, women, had no right to vote. Had no, and no matter how well other people try to represent their interests, they would never have adequate representation. Nobody can represent yourself as well as you can, and and that is really the core of the civil rights movement. It's the core of what what Martin Luther King stood for beyond color blindness. Is, is that you had to have representation for people by the people who are being impacted by public policy. And in his case, it meant, you know, largely the African-American community. And, and the point I'm making about a balanced budget amendment is that our kids have no representation. We can't represent their adult interests as well as they can. And the problem with borrowing is that by the time all the decisions that mortgage their, mortgage their future are made, it's too late for them to to change the outcome. And so we have to do something to our system to represent their interests now, before that debt is incurred. And the only way we can do that, absent a time machine to bring them here to vote, is, is a limit on borrowing capacity. So, so in the end, if you're concerned about representation and having the elements of democracy in our system work, you've got 
to represent the interests of our kids in today's public policy debates with a limit on borrowing capacity. And, you know, our kids, for the first time ever, um, our children and grandchildren, from a prosperity perspective, um, it seems that their future is not as bright as, you know, our generation, right? Um, It used to be that the older generations um, saw for their children and their grandchildren's a better future. It's it's not that way anymore. Our children and our it, grandchildren. It, it can be. It can be if we get a limit imposed on the debt in the near future before it gets truly out of hand, because it's not hard to fix the situation. If you simply inject a reason to be efficient in government, a reason to prioritize, amazing things can happen. If you just cut the spigot of unlimited borrowing capacity, then options like uh, opening up you know, the coastal shelf to, to development for minerals or oil or, or, or selling off some federal lands or, or allowing greater access to develop uh, the, the minerals and oils and the other things that exist on federal lands, all these options suddenly become debatable. Uh, if you have a limit on borrowing capacity where you need to make those hard calls. And, and if we do that, there, there's plenty of wealth and opportunity to create wealth in our country to fix the problem. But if you don't create the reason to prioritize, if you don't dispel the illusion of unlimited resources and you s- instead just let the system crash, we may not have a civilization that can fix straight to get this done then. So... We've got just a couple minutes left. What can our listeners do to get involved and to support your efforts? Go to www.compactforamerica.org, www.compactforamerica.org. Sign up on our mailing list, get the latest news, and if you're in Texas, uh, support uh, Representative James White and HB 1109. You know, you've presented a really intriguing option and powerful solution to this problem of federal spending. And as you know, our founding fathers intended for the states to maintain control over the federal government, uh, which seems totally implausible based on what's happened since. But your solution gives the states um, control of the federal government as it was supposed to be. And Nick, thank God for people like you who are willing to do whatever it takes to really take care of our future and maybe um, this is a solution to save save our country and, and really save our children and grandchildren. Um, your website, the link to your website will be on livingwealthyradio.com and I urge um, all of you listening to this broadcast today to um, check out compactforamerica.org see if you can get involved, see if you can um, contact um, your state legislatures and see if they can't um, support this. Thank you for coming on to Living Wealthy Radio, and uh, God bless. Good luck. Thank you. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio on Talk 1370 and streaming live at talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 
This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The info being presented does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation and does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax advisor or legal counsel or other professional, and you should not use the information in place of a personal consultation regarding your specific situation or needs prior to taking any action based on this information. We believe the info provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.